are listening to KYRS, Medical Expo Can at 88.1 and 92.3 FM. And this is Art Hour, and I'm one of your hosts, Mike Malson. And I'm your other host, Eric Woodard. This is our second kind of outdoor interview that we've had since COVID. We've tried Zoom, and that seems to work, but we like the first outdoor roading. So here we are at beautiful Cannon Hill Park, Eric. On the Stone Bridge. On the Stone Bridge, overlooking the pond. Um, nice, cool morning. So... First Who do we have for our guest? Yeah, yeah. This is Aaron Pringle. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Thanks Hi. for being here. Thank you. For uh, having and you. I, I'm friends with Darren on Facebook, and we've we've interacted multiple times before. But um, I saw that she was doing a reading at her place for her book that was published last fall in February. In February, okay. Um, Which might as well have been last fall. <laughs> <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> time wise, yeah, yes, yeah. Like ten years ago. Uh, right. And um, I've been wondering, how do you pronounce the name? Is it Hey or He? I say Hazada. Hazada. Yeah. So it's more like a huh. Okay, yeah. Hazada. I miss you. It's set in a small town. Yeah. Is it? Uh, you don't name the small town. No. In the book, is it? To what extent is it Casey, Illinois, it's, where you grew up? It's um, much more Westfield. That was a village that my town of three thousand consolidates with, and the village is about. Well, when I was growing up, about 800 people, but I think it's down to about 600 now. And so the novel is set more imaginatively there, but still at a better time in its imagined life than it has been in decades. Okay. Yeah. Um, So this was based on the other town yeah and was the other town considered the the better town or the worst town in the pairing uh well it was just so it's just so much smaller they still consolidate that they westfield was kind of by the casey people i don't know probably like the united states sometimes consider considers canada Mm. you know like it's just basically exactly like the United States, but a little further away. You know, I think that's probably the the Casey okay. the Casey kind of mindset in in that. But but Westfield was it had a school, um, and it and the building had been a, a normal college at the beginning of the 20th century, so where teachers would be trained, and then that building either burned down or then when it was replaced it became the i think the k through high school and then eventually the high school was was removed and then they started consolidating with casey at fifth grade and then when i was about 12 that building was torn down and they started consolidating from kindergarten on so it was kind of watching the slow slowly watching the culture of uh the village be dismantled um, and become less, uh, a, it's center, like watching its center be removed, even though, you know, physically all the houses are still mm-hmm. around a center that's gone. Yeah. Right. But you've got three lampposts, so you've got that going for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, the big idea uh, of the start of the novel is the circus is coming to town and it's been coming to town for over a hundred years. Is, was that a big thing in Casey? No. No? No, I think... No, there's a lot of imagination in this oh, okay. novel to make it work to talk about, um, to examine 
that way of living. Um, there, when by the time I was growing up, the I think the circus came once to our town, and I rem and even by then it was a sort of strange affair. I mean, my sister took me to it, and it was set up by the swimming pool, and it was very small and and dirty, falling apart. You know, like it wasn't. No one was looking forward to it coming. It just sort of appeared and then disappeared, like Brigadoon, I guess. And um, but by when I was in third grade, our field trip was to Terre Haute, which was basically where most everyone is born in the hospital there. So you drive 45 minutes, that's shopping malls there. That's the city. And in Terre Haute, the circus was coming to Holman Center, which was the big, uh, you know, the equivalent of the arena. Um, and that's where basketball and, and off-Broadway shows came and the circus came. And then that was the excitement, was going to an air-conditioned space. So it was already, um, it, it had left, it had left the, the fields and grass. Yeah, well, and even as you're talking about these two towns, uh, the, I think that the pull and what makes writing about small towns interesting from somebody who's been there is, I, there's obviously a lot of affection for the, for this town, this fictional town, which is, you know, based on some of your experiences, I'm sure. But you left. Right. Yes. <laughs> I did. Uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, difficult. There's a, a deep affection for it. And I think for memories I have growing up there, it was a difficult place to live um, for me. And... Um, but I think the trajectory of it could have been really nice if it had been more progressive or more accepting or it was just a very um, religious, um, what's the word? It was just very same, you know, like the same families had lived there since it was the same white families had lived there since the oil boom in the late 1800s and and my family had come in a little later in the 60s so they were still very cognizant that we didn't belong you know mm. even though it was 30, even though you've been there 30 years later <laughs> yeah um yeah it was it just didn't if 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 you fit into that way of thinking then it's wonderful you know, in, in the same way that urban living, if you fit into that way of thinking, it's wonderful. But if you're longing for rural spaces, then it can be really suffocating to be, you know, you're constantly around people. So in, in you know, each each space has its, has its uh, problems but I, I do I do better in the urban mm -hmm. environment. Well, so I, I was curious about that because the title is Hazada, uh, I Miss You. Mm -hmm. So the, the part that you miss, is it a real part that you miss or is this uh, kind of fictionalized as well? Well, the novel revolves around, I mean, there's the circus, you know, in, in fiction, a story is supposed to happen on a day unlike any other day. And when I started writing it, um, I started writing about the circus and then I realized, well, if you write, if the circus is new to the town, you know, if it's just passing into this village for the first time, then everyone in the village will be acting differently than they would 
yesterday or the day after the circus leaves. So then the circus had to be long standing within the village so that the villagers were acting as typically as they do. Um, you know, they were no longer aware of cameras watching them. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like they were back to who they are. And um, so I was writing on that for a long time. And then 10 years ago, my sister died by suicide and she never left that area. So she had moved 30 miles away and raised her family there. Um, and so I had been working on this book, but I like the circus had become not the day unlike any other day. So I, and I kept trying to think, well, what is the day unlike any other day? And then when my sister died, I, I thought, oh, you know, that, that, that's the day unlike any other day where you can see both the people behaving as they would, but then when they're confronted with something that sort of comes into conflict with their belief systems or comes, whether that's religion or the way they sort of view each other and themselves and the way they think about death and the way they think about community and what it means to be a member of the community. If someone chooses to leave it, whether that's by travel or death, mm -hmm. um, then that shifts how you then think about yourself and your community. And so it wasn't really so much that when my sister died, I thought, oh, here, I can fix the novel around that. It was, I write, and I was so over, I don't think overcomes the right word, but that's all I, you know, it was, my identity was shifting, and my sense of community, and my sense of memory, right, because it changed all my memories, because now even my sister took me to the circus when I was five, and she was 21, but now she's dead, right, so every memory now ends, much differently than it had when she was alive. You know, it was just a memory. Um, but now everything was, oh, and now she's dead. And now she's dead. And now she's dead. And so, um, so in, in writing, it, I couldn't not write about that. You know, mm -hmm. like now to write about the town was to also write about that experience. And going back to the town for her funeral and the sort of um imagined voices you know because i know how you're trained in a pattern of how people think there in your town or in your house or in your urban space you know the patterns mm -hmm. of how people think and so while i was back in that space i was constantly imagining people what they were saying about her and the and it's not pleasant things right because you already have heard how they think about gay people far long before you come out as gay right or they you know how they think about marriage long before you know like mm -hmm. someone has a divorce and then everyone's like oh but it's okay if you do you know like mm -hmm. um you still know the patterns and so in writing the book it was already kind of set up um, and so Hazada, I miss you is both the missing of what, what could have been, what the town wanted to be, what it was at the, at the oil boom, the sort of the nostalgia that people use to justify, um, having beautiful memories when they're kind of editing the memories to make them beautiful. And so I think it's the, his, Hizada, <laughs> um, is the name of the circus, um, but it's also n the name of the child 
not narrator, but one of the main characters, her name's based on the circus. And one of the things that the villagers and the circus <coughs> members will cry is Hazada, like an exclamation. You know, like it's a beautiful day, Hazada. Um, and so I think it, w the title and, and the novel is trying to get at that intersection of where um, memory and wish and life and death uh, sort of come together where it's both beautiful and awful and you miss it, but you don't want it at the same time. And I think, so that's kind of a, a connection to the, the title. You've written a lot of short stories. I mean, that's kind of your big, that's your big. Yeah, this is just my longest story. Right. <laughs> that was kind of my question. Yeah. Was this a short story that just became bigger? Or did you always know it was going to be a novel? I always knew it was going to be a novel. And how long did you know you had this novel in you before you kind of start? Is how long did this percolate? I guess is the question. Twenty years, I think. Wow. Yeah. So I was fifteen to twenty years. So I was writing on it and writing on it, and then I would write a short story, and you know, so I had mm -hmm. several other books published, and I those you could you, with a short story you can see, just even in the style that you choose to write it in what its length will have to be to justify the style or to justify how much time you want to spend with the character. And everything about this book was co like coming out in ways that it wasn't going to end in 30 pages. And, and to try to end it in 60 pages would require, you know, big sweeping um, edits and removals of things that I really wanted to be in there. Um, so I always knew it was going to be a novel. It was just like, uh, you know, in the Odyssey where the wife is waiting for Odysseus to come home and she's weaving every day and then pulling apart what she's woven because she's trying to trick the men into not marrying her because she just has to get this done. I feel like I was doing that for about 15 years. It was oh, just wow. weaving the fabric and then unweaving it to try to figure out, well, no, that didn't work that way and weaving. And then I finally started having the form when my best friend had gone to the bathroom somewhere and somebody had written in graffiti, Hazada, I miss you. And then he brought it, the title back to me and said, I think that you will need, I think this is something up your alley because he's a writer and I'm a writer. So we were always you know, like birds for our nests, our writing nests. And he said, I think this, he'd written it down and said, I think this is something you need. And then as soon as I saw it, I thought, oh, there, that's the circus novel. Oh, so. that's interesting. You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at southperrypizzaspokane.com. When you were talking um, about Eric's question about where you're from, small town, Indiana, right? Illinois. Or Illinois. And then you were talking about... Um, the way small towns, you know, you have a, a certain mindset, uh, families for generations have been in, a, in an area. It made me think about just our political reality today, how, you know, how we're separated in the, the Midwest. I mean, we have all these kind of cultures within a large and the loss 
the feeling that you're losing some of that. You talked about the loss of the culture mm-hmm. of one time as you're merging in there. Um, do you think that is is part of what's going on in terms of how we can be played on to be so much more divided because people sense a loss of what they think America was or was for them in in the past. Yeah, I think it's well, I've been thinking I was thinking about that when I was reading the death and life of Ida Hernandez and he talks about the nonfiction book about um, immigration and the Arizona-Mexico border and how so much of the policy that was made um, from the 50s on was done geographically thousands of miles away from where the policy was affecting the people and it was easier to um, sell a story to people who didn't live there about what was going on there um, and 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 hence then all the it, it riled up you know the 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 ideas that people who didn't live there had about themselves and others when they imagined strangers <laughs> you know and um in the same way that um, there'll be the lots of um, anti-rural rhetoric and even the um, the Liberal Party is blaming um, rural mindsets for the current presidency. But those people who grew up rural, who are progressive and 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 do know the way of living that. You know, that not everyone is like a, a white supremacist who mm-hmm. is also a farmer. Um, it makes it harder for that narrative to work. But if you are surrounded by people who have never lived in a small town, then it, then it does make sense because they're, it, cause who knows mm-hmm. the fear, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same living in Puritan times of what's in the woods, the devil, the darkness, the witches, the, the women, the sin, you know, everything is not there in the village. It's just beyond, you know? And so using geography and maybe the illusion of connection that social media creates to, um, manipulate people, right? So they Mm -hmm. think that they are more connected to each other than they actually are. And then using the actual distance to, um, to make them believe things about each other that are inaccurate, but that serve some other person's um, profit motive, whether that's a religious profit motive or an economic one or um, a power power motive. Yeah. You were scheduled to go back there. Soon, yeah, yeah. Right? right? And how yeah. often do you get back there? Um, after my sister died, I hadn't gone for about eight years. I mean, but before she died, I was not a frequent visitor. Um, so, but then I've, I've now that I have a child, um, we, I've been back the past three years, I think. And it's very, it's a very different experience as an adult than it is as a child growing up there. Um, and you know, I, I know that I'm not staying. Um, I wish that I could, I wish that I could live, 
um, I would be so happy living on a country road, you know, and I would be because I think organisms, you know, you are raised in a certain environment and and that frog, let's say, is taught what is safe and what is dangerous within that area that that frog lives. And then you put it in a different pond and it recognizes, you know, like, oh, there's some patterns here, but it still doesn't feel quite right. So, and that's urban living to me is it still doesn't feel quite right. You know, and in my small town, I know every road and I know every back way and I know every person and, or enough of the people, you know, now I've been gone for a while, but all the stories that are connected to the families. And so, um, and, and the way of moving and the way of talking and, and what is true when they say it and what is false when they say it, even though they're pretending it's true. You know, like <laughs> I know all the nuances because I had to survive to grow up there. Um, whereas here, I didn't have to survive to grow up here. So a lot of times I feel like I'm moving through a space with... Um, Kind of like when I, I didn't grow up Catholic, but when I go to the Catholic church, there's a romance I have about it. Um, but I know that people who grow up in the Catholic church don't always have that same romantic feeling because they have an actual background with it yeah, and an yeah. actual, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and so I, I feel like sometimes I'm moving through a painting and I know that other people are not experiencing it as a painting, but I don't have all of the the learned patterns to see it as not a painting, you know? So I hear people like, Oh, we need to go move to the West side, you know? So I know that longing, Oh, we got to get out of here. We've got to get to Chicago. Mm -hmm. We've got to get out, you know, somewhere else and, and never making it. And then that being okay. So I hear Pat, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, um, yeah, I wish that I could live in Casey, Illinois. I really, you know, but I can't. Oh. Yeah. Why can't you? Because I'm gay. <laughs> uh, is that pretty much it? Um, no, not just that. Um, because there's, um, I think I had a just, it's just a sad place for me. Um, it wasn't an easy. Comfortable but sad. Yeah. 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 yeah comfortable but sad. Very. Um, and I don't think that I could be productive as productive sometimes I imagine while I'm running around like literally running through Spokane that well maybe when I retire you know I'll be so um <laughs> I'll be so you know 80 years old people will just leave me alone and I can go you'll be the old shelter lady. in place when I'm old I will wear purple right, right and right. I'll go live in that <laughs> cornfield you know yeah, though yeah. I think that I could probably live there now but I don't think but I think moving away is what allowed for that yeah and writing books allowed for that um in a way that when I was growing up there was a uh, um the farmers who lived just down the the road um had a son who had moved away to San Francisco and then he came back with AIDS 30 years later right so he was um probably in his 40s when he moved back and um and he was a very isolated figure you know and um and and so he kind of, he kind of lived on the farm but in his own place and um 
and he he was a very sad person. Um, not that I'm saying it was sad. He was sad, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a happy way for his life to end. Um, so, so there's, I don't know. I grew. I think I grew up learning the script of survival there. And I don't know what it is to live there and, and be actually who I am. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, and, and so um, even on Facebook, I'll see memes that are really full of vitriol um, from um, not people I grew up with, but people in other small towns where I've lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, is that what you really think? You know, like... Because then there's even if you you go back to the place where you were you grew up, there's still people being quiet and not saying to you what they actually think, you know, and I'm a forceful personality. So I think people are more likely to be quiet around me than to have conflict. with me. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it would be like to um, live honestly and authentically in amidst the cornfields. Mm-hmm. Does that tension? Um help your creativity uh, as a writer? I don't know if it helps it, but it certainly is all I think about. (laughs) You know? um, Well, and that was my... I was going to ask the question, did you start writing in Casey in order to kind of deal with all this stuff? Was, Was it therapeutic in that sense that then became something that you wanted to do for a living? Or how did you start writing? Uh, well, my sister was a writer and she was 16 years older than me. And so she, um, would share her stories with me when I was growing up and I read all the time because there was such an age gap between myself and my siblings, um, that, uh, that I didn't have, and my parents were not of the generation of any of my other fellow friends, parents. So, um, I read all the time and I, and I don't know if it was coping, but it was a way of understanding the world, um, in ways that I didn't have access to with people that I lived around. And who were the writers that inspired you back then? Uh, oh, well, I loved, um, AVI or Avi, you know, the true confessions of Charlotte Doyle and Devil's Race and... Um, I really loved uh, My Side of the Mountain by, and, well, just really anything by Jean Crayhead George. And and then I read all, I was trying to figure out how to be a girl, I think. So I read all the, just in first grade, I went and checked out A Vote for Love from the library. It was part of a Sweet Dreams romance series for teenagers. And the librarian did not want to check it out to me because I was seven, I guess. And I'm like, no, I mean, I can read it. Why would I, I mean, I can read these words. And so I just read all of those, you know, I was just kind of studying, you know, who people were and what they were like. And um, yeah, and then when I discovered I think Faulkner was pretty intense, but that wasn't until I wasn't living there anymore. But, you know, he writes about rural spaces mm-hmm. and the strange, the strangeness of the people interacting with each other in those spaces in a way that I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I'm not <Yeah>. alone. <laughs> right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So what was your journey from Casey to here? I mean, it sounds like you've lived in other small towns. Yeah, so I um, 
So I grew up in Casey and then I, for a brief time, I went to uh, a college in Chicago and then I moved back down to, not Casey, but Terre Haute, Indiana, who's just right on the border. Um, and I went to school there, to college there um, in three years so I could get out, right? Like I'd get out cause I knew I had to survive. Then I moved, um, for grad school. I lived in Texas in San Marcos, Texas, which is right between Austin and San Antonio. And, um, I was married to, um, now my best friend, but he had grown up in a very small town, Luling near San Marcos. So, you know, it was, st it was still, I, so that I think that counts as living there though we didn't, um, cause it was so close and present. And then, um, after grad school, I taught at Texas state university for seven years and then moved up here so that my spouse went to the Eastern Eastern's writing program. And then I taught at the falls for, um, another four years, five, six years, six years. Yeah. And, so that, and are you here for the long haul? I think so. I think so because there's a lot, at least in the painting of Spokane <laughs> that I walk through. <laughs> um, seasonally, it's the same as the Midwest, so that was nice. Mm -hmm. um, and there are, it's it's while there were 2,000 people lined up to see Bernie Sanders when he was here in 2016, which was refreshing and beautiful. Um, there's still a very conservative push of Absolutely. the city that I am familiar with. Right. Like it feels familiar. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, because it's very agrarian for them yeah. still, mm -hmm. especially where I live out in the valley, which is very Right, you're very close. Now, yeah. And wow. so there's a, so even though I might grind my teeth when I'm in the coffee shop listening, I know those conversations. So it's almost, um, a way of feeling grounded in the world because I under, I feel like I understand that way of speaking. Um, so, so there's something kind of familiar and good and nice about having that. Um, probably if I grew up in a very urban place, then the conservative element might be really hard. But, um, and I, I really like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be here for a while. I like Green Bluff. I like, I, sometimes I just have to get out there just because there's nothing, you know, it's just mm -hmm. land. Um, yeah, it, it seems to be a good, a happy medium. The Midwest and the Northwest, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, so how do you like um, the teaching of writing? I was, because I started out as a um, band director, but I immediately found out that teaching kids especially in a middle school that play was a lot different than playing yeah so as a writer um there's a you know a sense of you're working at your own craft and but now you've got kids that you're that all have all have different viewpoints on writing and yeah. different work ethics and things like that but how was your experience as a teacher of writing um i really learned to love uh teaching composition 101 and 102 because it wasn't creative writing and it was with a it just felt like such a big project of teaching critical thinking to to basically everyone I'd grown up with is what it felt like like you know that year after we all would have graduated high school here we were in a classroom and now I was the teacher 
Um, especially at the falls because I grew up in, you know, a conservative space and in a low income home and understood a lot of my students in a way that I didn't always understand university students who, who were more of a middle-class raising. Um, so I love teaching in that way, writing, but that was essay writing and nothing like what I, what I write. When I taught creative writing, I did not enjoy that. And that was a surprise, like you said. Mm -hmm. um, I, because I suddenly didn't know why we were doing it. I mean, I know, <laughs> I know why I do it. I know now the path is one marked with a requirement of either money or fellowship and scholarship. I know that you can't really support yourself with it unless you are also doing other types of writing to support it. And so I was there at the falls teaching creative writing to students who had also come from low income homes. And I thought, why are we doing this? Like, I mean, I don't want to be one of the teachers that I had who sort of said this was possible, you know, inadvertently through teaching it when it really um, isn't. You know, there was, um, it's not. And when you say it's possible, do you mean it's possible to make a living on it? Is that right. what you mean? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Where you're not also, what do the kids say? Hustling. You know, yeah. you have a lot of side hustles mm -hmm. to do it. Um, and, and, and then in the teaching of it, if, if I, I, yeah, I just, I struggled. I struggled with it in ways that I had never expected that I would. And, so yeah, I feel very anxious in the creative writing classroom, um, both as a student I did and as a teacher. And so now I teach preschool art and I love it. <laughs> it's very exactly where I should be. Um, yeah. Now, why did you feel uncomfortable as a student in a creative writing classroom? That surprises me. Um, well, because there's still ideas of what the writing should look like when it comes into the classroom. And so in undergrad, it was fine. I had a very, um, a teacher who was very like, you know, good image, good image, good image. And he, and he wrote, he wrote enough poetry and read enough poetry and he was so near retirement and senility um, <laughs> that it was fine with him if the fiction, you know, broke lines or if the fiction wasn't all um, beginning, middle, surprise us. And it wasn't, you know, it just did what it did. He was fine with that. You know, he was beautiful line, beautiful sentence, beautiful image, you know, and very reinforcing. But in grad school, that was not my experience. It was very... Um, no, the poets are over here, you know, mm -hmm. and the fiction writers are over here and the twain shall never meet in the classroom and your style should never meet. Whereas I prefer reading poetry to fiction. Um, and, and my style of writing is not beginning, middle surprise us. And so my stories would show up in the, in the classroom and, um, and it would be, answered with silence for a long time and then um and then you know people would would say that the writing seemed kind of pretentious and um that it was too experimental and what are you trying to say and you know there's a lot of mm -hmm. um i think when 
uh, a writer who is using language as the vehicle for the story and not using the story as the vehicle for the story, when those writers are developing, they exhibit much different characteristics than um, beginning, middle, end story writers, you know, and uh, and if you don't know that they look different, then it looks like one is just doing it wrong and you need to kind of, um, you know, put a form around them and just, you know, what people used to do to left-handed students, you know, like, oh, you just need to use your right hand better. You know, there's just something wrong with your your right hand, but they really were just left-handed. And so they exhibited ways of writing in their handwriting and that seemed wrong. Um, just in the way, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking, I mean, that happens in other artistic, yeah. uh, you know, I think of music, you know, I mean, you know, Stravinsky didn't follow all the rules and was booed uh, immensely with his performance uh, like Ride of, Sp Ride of Spring because it was so dramatically breaking all the rules. And um, and you see that all along with uh, jazz and all kinds of music. You know, somebody, you almost need the constraint of these rules and then know how to color inside the lines before you can color outside the lines and pretty soon that kind of gets accepted and do you yeah. have somebody speaking of coloring outside the lines so since uh, it sounds like a lot of these people had preformed notions of what writing should be right. yeah. do you have people you can bounce these off of who kind of accept the story oh, yeah. for what it's trying to do who are your best readers um my best read my best reader is my friend jack and we went to grad school together and, um, and I always, and I think it's learning when to give something to somebody. So I never give anything until it's done. Um, and when I know it's done. So I think that's the other problem with the creative writing workshop or the, or the way that it tends to go is that, you know, students are students. So you have to turn in a story and maybe it doesn't feel done, but you got to turn it in anyway or you're working on a novel, but that doesn't fit the short story workshop. And so you might prematurely give a couple chapters that will, you know, if you had never put them into workshop, you yourself probably would have deleted them <laughs> a lot, you know, after a while, or they would have moved somewhere else into the book, but they're presented as <clears throat> a finished product product, even though everyone pretends that it's not a finished product, everyone treats it like a finished product. Um, and so then that sort of messes with, um, the natural progression of telling a story. Um, anyway, so Jack, Jack reads my work and with this book, um, no one read it until I think Jack was the first one. So it, it was, you know, 15 years before anybody write anything out of it. And it had already been accepted for publication by the time I asked Jack to read it. So the first person to read it was the publisher mm. um, because I, it was a terrible book to write. And so I didn't want to... Terrible emotionally, you mean? Yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, and if somebody reads it, now you have to talk about it. or you, And I didn't want to. So, um, yeah. So I have Jack and I have Owen and... 
and then my best friend and former spouse Jeremy will read it um, and those are usually the three people I'll have yeah. But do you, this is uh, kind but of But no, a, no workshops. I don't do any writing groups okay. and I don't do that, any like that. Yeah. That was kind of where yeah. I was going because some people have talked about how workshops were the, were the place that they really found themselves. But right. you don't do that. No. <laughs> no. Do you, is I it don't. because you find that your fiction just doesn't fit into the mold that a lot of the workshops kind of expect it to fit into? Um, I think that, I think it's just the process is different. Um, of how I go about it. And so talking about a project I'm working on kills it for me. Okay. Whereas I think for some people, their, their process requires talking about it. Um, and so it's just, it doesn't fall in line with with that. So now I know what I'm what I'm not going to ask for my next question. <laughs> what, what were you going to ask? Uh, like what her next project is. <laughs> yeah. So uh, forget that I one. Know, I'm, just running, I'm just running a lot. Yeah. Running a lot. <laughs> so speaking of publication, I was looking at the reading and discussion questions in the back. Did you read these? Yeah, I wrote them. Did you write them? I did. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was wondering about that. That's yeah. why I asked. Because some of these, I would wonder how you would answer these. I know. Did you feel like you had an answer for all of these questions? Or? I don't, I don't know. Well, like, for I instance. I tried to, I don't remember them. What hmm. scenes stood out most to you and why? Oh, yeah. I mean... That's just a good conversation starter, I feel like. Um, do you want to know what scene stands out to I me do. most? Uh, well, I really love the scene where uh, Heza... So Heza's the little girl and her brother's Abe and their mother dies. And it's the day after... Or it's not the day after, it's the day of. And, and, and the other reason that I needed to write the book is that when Jennifer died, my sister, there were no fic, like I go to fiction to understand the world and to understand people. And there were so few pieces on suicide that it was very unuseful to me. I'd read, um, Night Mother, which is this play that came out and I think she won the Pulitzer for it in 83. And then it was made into a movie with Sissy Spacek, right? Probably, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and that was, that was so useful, you know, and so I would think of lines from that um, to help me understand what was going on. Um, but this book isn't about um, really why someone does it, which is, I think, what people want to talk about, um, but more the effect on the people around the people who are left and their experience. And so it's not a, why did you do it? But it's a, this is what happens to the people, you know, and not a guilt or blame narrative. Like you shouldn't have done it. Cause look how these people have been destroyed, but, um, just an examination of that, because that would have been the book would have been so useful for me to have read, you know, 10 years ago. I really needed that book 10 years ago. Um, so the, the scene, one of the scenes that stands out is Heza. Uh, so she has found her mom and it's later in the day and she is supposed to be 
I can't remember if it's that. Yeah, it's all in the same day. But she's kind of wandering around the town and she shows up at the circus. And the circus hasn't started yet. They've set up. But, you know, the tickets have been sold, but nothing's really started. And Frank, who runs the circus, he and the circus boss are at their camper and they're just kind of, uh, they're just talking, you know, shooting the, you know, and, and Heza shows up and her hair is really, really, really short because she doesn't really understand what it is to be a girl in this town. And, and she's, has no mother now. And Frank fixes her a sandwich. And so he just goes in to get a sandwich and comes out and she sits down and they just sort of talk about other, you know, they just kind of talk, but it's this really heavy scene. But the only thing that really happens happens is that Frank and the circus boss have been sort of being funny to each other about whole grain bread, you know, and like, Frank, why do you like this kind of bread? It's too expensive, you know, and Frank, I love this bread. It's a good bread. You know, do you want a sandwich? And then here comes Heza, whose whole life has been completely shifted, you know, within, you know, the day. And then he makes her a sandwich and they sit, you know, and so I think that scene stands out a lot, but that's not a, it wasn't a motivating scene. Yeah. It's just kind of subtext. A lot yeah. Of subtext. I re- yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it, an image, like it's just kind of beautiful because they're all three, like physically very different people. Um, and their histories are very different from each other. Um, and they're surrounded by just desolation and poverty, but but they're having like a really whole grain, healthy sandwich <laughs> together. You know, like there's yeah. something kind of beautiful about that. Oh, I think. That's, that's one part. I can't wait to get there. There were two other questions in here that I thought would be useful for somebody who hadn't read the book and who might want to read the okay. book. Uh, what other works does Hazada remind you of? Mm. I mean, as an author, that's kind of tricky to ask that question, right. but. Uh, well, it reminds me of Ingmar Bergman's films. I really love his winter light and the silence and, um, persona and through a glass darkly. All his, his films are very quiet and, and, and everyone is allowed to think in his films that I, in a, in a way that I find so uh, not refreshing, but affirming, you know? And so the characters, something happens, but then you see them kind of take it into their bodies and rest on it. There's not like an immediate dialogue and all, every time they speak, it's very careful. Everyone's careful with each other. Even when they're terrible to each other, it's, they're carefully terrible, which is even worse, you know? Um, (laughs) and the lighting, everything is, it's they're beautiful terrible films and um and i would hope that it maybe well it doesn't matter what i hope like that the book reminds me of that a lot of and he'll take these characters that you don't think would ever be together and then you learn things about what it is to to believe and faith and breaking that and and unbreaking it in ways that on the surface it's just a day you know, in, in a, a pastor's life and he's coming to term with something, but there's something huge going on. You know, I like, 
Yeah, that's what it reminds me of. Okay. Yeah. And then the other question that I thought was really interesting, and I, the first part of this I think is interesting. Imagine you're on a bus reading this novel. Yeah, this is like from <laughs> one of my. This is how I start book discussions. Well, and I well, well, <laughs> because I'm like I don't know how to talk to people, so let's imagine we're on a bus. Well, coming from KZ, Illinois, you didn't say imagine yeah, you you're have on a, a plane yeah. or in a coffee shop. You're on a bus. I like that. Mm-hmm. Imagine you're on a bus reading this novel. A stranger asks what it's about. How would you explain it? I think that's a great question. <laughs> you do, but as an author, um, I well, I would say it's well, it's about. Um, I feel like the the. the I've, I've never. It's like describe like how do we describe the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock? You know. I don't know. What is this poem about? It's not about that he, his, the mermaid singing each to each. And it's not wholly about him feeling like he's scuttling on ragged claws across the beach. And it's not about, you know, that he sees beauty in the hair on the arm of a beautiful woman. But all of those things are what kind of create it. So I, I think in the plainest of ways, it's, Hazada is, I mean, yeah, it's about, I think it's about the collision and disintegration of self and the person that you were told you could become by teachers and by motivational posters and classrooms and by all the adults cheering you on and that sort of identity that they created at the same time that they were also um, really trying to make you in their image Um, at the same time they were saying you could be anything you want to be (laughs) Um, it's sort of about realizing that many of the dreams that a person has were not their own and then coming, I don't think this phrase coming to terms with that is right. Coming to terms with what it is then to find yourself not in that dream and, and then I don't know. I think it's the collision of how of our of lives, and it's set within. It's about. It's about. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> attempting. It's about attempting, and all the ways that people attempt to. I don't know. It's. I, I don't know. It's about. Aren't you, aren't you glad you asked you this question? You yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause I mean, it's about, cause I can say like, oh, it's about the circus, but it's not about the circus yeah. because the circus is over. You know, the circus has come to town, but the circus itself is over. As is the town. Yeah. The, the, the village is over and it's kind of like all the illusions. Everyone's looking back at the past as though it were real when it was happening, but it wasn't. You know, the town, 
maybe it was economically better and now it's economically worse, but the economics were an illusion of success. And now the people that they don't have that illusion, now they have to confront each other and themselves in ways that that success time didn't provide for. And the circus had also been this mirage used to kind of get to just to make money off of people whose lives were difficult. You know, it's a rural traveling circus. And, and now even that mirage can't hold up. And, and yet the people still try to let it be a mirage and the people within the circus still play the role of providing illusion, even though it's all falling apart. Mm -hmm. And then, and what does it mean to grow up in a place where that's happening, where no one is, where everyone's pretending things are fine, but they're not. You know, like watching a commercial during the pandemic. You know, people are dying everywhere and yet people are still buying buying dishwashing soap because a beautiful woman in a clean kitchen was selling it. And why is that? Like, how can those both be true? And so what does it mean to, that someone's even producing those commercials still? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. so it, it's it's that. It's the collision between illusion and reality and what happens when people are insisting on illusion and reality doesn't meet that illusion. Sure. Yeah. And when, I, when you're insisting on the illusion, the alternative is you realize it's an illusion, then what are you left with? Right. That's I, a terrible freedom right there. Right. That's uh, what I see uh, a lot in terms of the, the American dream yeah. that's been perpetuated on us for a for hundred years. And yet... We grow up and now we re realize the illusion of the American dream and now we have to confront that ourselves. And I think that's... And then we have to say, what is the dream? Then, then yeah. It, and everybody's it, dream's going to be different. It, yeah. That's and so a this is a thing. great uh, reset to try to explore our own selves and how we would deal with that. You know, I think that's exactly what's going on with a lot of the demagoguery to push people into these beliefs that they think should be the real thing but they're really not and yet uh, we hold on to that and instead of moving forward uh, it's the government's fault or something like that you know it's so right. easy to uh, play on those fears you know like we you know not to be too political but make no, america great again really is about oh let's go back to the past when we thought everything was great those you know, illusions that Aaron was talking right. about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And now wishes. we're realizing, you know what? Coal mining is not going to come back the way it did. And now what do, what do all the coal miners and people in Appalachia that do that, how do they come to grips with the fact that, that wasn't, this is now an illusion that we're holding on to, you know, and, and how we all can play a role in that. Anyway, I just think that's a great metaphor what I, with what I see is, when you grow up, you have a certain value system, a certain mind filter, because that's what you know yeah. you grow up in, and then you discover, what the heck? It's like you know? getting out of the matrix, man. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. We're yeah. like Young Goodman Brown. There, yeah. the, the, there, there is a book that reminds me, or not a book, a story. Young uh, Goodman Brown. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because at the end, he can't see anyone as they've told him to see them by the end, and he's just devastated, because he has no idea how to deal with that, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. Wow. <clears throat> well, we're almost out of time. I'd imagine. <laughs>
and I know you don't like to talk about your new work, but are you working on another novel or what? What I mean, you don't. You, yeah, you don't I, need to be super. Right? Specific. No, it's okay. I I now know what what breaks the thing, so I can. Um, I'm working on. Uh, so there's a story collection that I'm working on that I haven't worked on for a while, but it's in existence. And there's a novel that's coming out the same way that this one did. So who knows when it'll be done? I don't know. But I think about it a lot. I was thinking about it the other day. <clears throat> Maybe I should share this image because I the image that starts this book is one I saw in Spokane. And where there was this kid it was he was two brothers or they seemed like brothers going down the street and one was on a skateboard and using a crutch to push himself along and we were in um a space that just looked a lot like Casey. and i thought holy <laughs> like that's i know like there's so much going on right there because he was an adult crutch but he was using it to get along and he was just playing but at the same time there's all this strangeness happening um and i had been a visitor at a creative writing class or maybe a, a, they, maybe they weren't writers but i said here's an image i'm never going to use so you can just have it and use it however you want because i'd had it for so long you know and i never could figure out where to put it and I'd started many stories with it and it didn't work or ended them. And, and then it ended up being the beginning of this book. But, um, so I'm working on a long story, we'll say, and maybe it's a novel or maybe it's just a really long story. And it's set in imaginatively in Oblong, Illinois, which is where my dad grew up. Um, and, uh, it's set around, um, it amuses me. So I'm not going to share the amusement because it's so amusing. But the other day I was running on Fish Lake Trail. And, uh, you know, as you're going along that path, there's the railroad tracks on the side. And then there's also all of these spaces where there's some graffiti and, and you can see exactly why there is and, and exactly why people would gather there. And so then I started imagining this conversation between a couple of high schoolers who want to get out of Oblong, Illinois, you know, and, and so anyway, so yeah, I'm working on a novel and there's a phone call from the president in it. <laughs> and there is a woman who's been gay her whole life and not realized it. And, um, I don't know the name of it but I'm working on it. Find it on some graffiti somewhere. I will, <laughs> right? Yeah, and stories and then some some poem things. Uh, and people can find you at AaronPringle.com. They can, they can. And, and they can buy your books there? Yeah, and it's at Auntie's. And I know Giant Nerd Books still has my second story collection, The Whole World at Once. Um, yeah, and you can get it on Amazon or um, from the publisher, AWST oust press um or if you want it signed you can find me on my website and message me and i have a few copies left if you're into that thing but no pressure 
Yeah. Yeah, which is what I did. Yeah, that's what you did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, it was truly oh, a pleasure. Great pleasure. To you. I'm glad to got to know you. Thanks for meeting us this morning. Thank you so out much. here, at Cannon Hill, oh. with the kids. Eric, I gotta say, I love this format. <laughs> it I is. mean, I feel like I'm having a coffee conversation, uh, which yeah. we are. It's yeah. great. It's awesome. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.